Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that you work in a mighty way in every one of these situations. We'd also pray for just the government higher up that you would continue to protect our uh, president, that he uh, would uh, continue to follow some of the guidance of the believers that are around him, as is in some cases evident and others not, but we just pray that you would listen and would in fact follow. And Lord, I've also heard that he is a recent convert, if that's the case, that you would grow him up soon, quick. He might grow in you, and we would just commit all of them to you and desire that uh, you would work and accomplish your will, that we may live in peace, that we may be able to not just enjoy it, but be able to be free to teach and preach and share the gospel in a world that desperately needs it. And this morning, as you prepare us to do that in your word, that uh, you would open it up and that we may clearly understand and better be prepared, that we may have an impact on the world we live in. So we commit all this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in our book of Romans, continuing in a very, very important passage, chapter 8, and Paul is developing these ideas that relate to the Christian walk, and some of them are basic, some of them are not difficult to understand, but for some reason, because of the hardness of our hearts, sometimes we are either resistant to them and or get into a mindset that doesn't apply them. So walking in the Spirit is not a difficult concept, but one that even within the Christian community, there are few that actually practice walking in the Spirit. So we're going to look at a problem that existed in the first century. Believers in the first century struggled with the same thing. That's why Paul deals with it. Not only here, but to the church at Galatia, very clearly there, many other places as well. And they had a lot more pressures than we do. Many of them died on that very spot there in the Colosseum. And they struggled. And in adversity, sometimes it's difficult to walk in the Spirit, but that's when we need it the most. And there's lots of examples of believers that actually did that, Stephen being one of them, and probably the vivid example in the book of Acts. So, we looked at justification. We're in the section dealing with sanctification, chapter 6 through 8. And it's been a while. In fact, I can't remember about 30 weeks that we have been in chapter 6, 7, and 8. So I thought I'd remind you concerning these principles, some of the basic things. We're not going to go over everything, obviously. Cram 30 weeks into an introduction here. But some of these principles go all the way back to chapter 5, and where Paul says in verses 20 and 21, the law came in so that transgression would increase... In other words, the law, because of its nature, stimulates sin, actually, but it's not the law per se, but it arouses within us a rebelliousness that produces transgression. And then Paul says, where sin increased, and you see it all around us, grace abounded all the more. In other words, 
the more evil a culture or a people or an individual go, the more evident is the grace that is available because forgiveness is available no matter how depraved we we end up. And then 21, so that as sin reigned in death, and he talked about that reign from all the way back to Adam, reminding us of Genesis chapter 3. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness. And that's what he just completed dealing with, is how do we enter into a right standing before God through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the human heart, as twisted and depraved as it is, is inclined to ask the question, well, if the more you sin, then that makes grace more evident, then I'm going to sin as much as I can just to help God out here in order that his grace may be even more evident. And apparently this was a question and an issue that was raised before Paul because he's going to proceed to answer it. And in essence, he's going to take these three chapters to answer that issue. So he goes into some detail to answer it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue... And that's a key word there. Continue in sin as you could, in the context, read back. In other words, the old, depraved, sinful, lost life. Are we to continue in that life? In other words, continue living that way. Continue in sin so that grace may increase. Because the more we sin, the more it's evident and the more powerful is grace. And then he answers it, and by the way, it's the sin, and in the context of the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, the sin that goes back all the way to Adam that started this whole path of humanity into depravity, continue in, so there's definitely a definite article there, the sin, so that grace may increase. And now he's going to proceed to answer that with an emphatic, may it never be. So what he's talking about here is now that we have been justified, now that we have come into an experience of eternal life, now that we have this relationship with God himself, because he has solved the issue of sin, now how do we continue? Do we continue with the old way of life or because of what happened to us, avail ourselves of the option. Now, our tendency is to continue in sin, because we still have the sin nature. So he's going to deal with that in three chapters, but he answers it very quickly and emphatically. And just to remind you, meganoito is the Greek phrase there. It's a very emphatic phrase, and you could paraphrase it. May it never be is a good translation But to kind of emphasize it, you could also paraphrase it away with the thought. In other words, put that thing as far away from you as you can think. Because this is absurd, is basically what he's saying. Or you might say, banish the thought. Get rid of it. Do away with it. Let not such a thing be even thought about or considered. Kind of a paraphrase there. Another one here, let it not be even conceived of. Don't even let it enter in, no matter whatever 
you think about. Perish the idea. And by the way, these are some of the paraphrases that some of the commentators paraphrase with. Be it not so. In other words, this is totally absurd. Impossible. Impossible to have this thought. Well, obviously it's not because people have it. Good heavens, no. (laughs) Oh, you like that one? (laughs) Yes. My favorite, in fact, this is mine, is, are you crazy? (laughs) This is my paraphrase. You know, we don't really have to try to sin because there's so many things. In fact, perhaps most of our sins aren't even sinful themselves. Yeah, it's not a matter of trying. It's a matter of just allowing our old way of life to continue. You know, like, uh, I don't know anything that says you can't enjoy a football game, but sometimes we're more concerned about whether or not the Cowboys are not this Sunday. Yep. our relationship with Jesus Christ. Yep. Different mindset. Yep. One more here. Absolutely not. And that's basically what he says. In other words, that idea is so out of reality or right thinking that you want to abandon it right away. And he starts with an answer here. How shall we who died to sin? And that's what he's been talking about before this point here, and now he's going to elaborate on this idea. In other words, what he's basically getting at, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he's going to talk about living after this experience, after dying to sin. That's why we call it a new section, sanctification. In fact, he uses that word at the end of chapter 6. And or continuing to live after we have been declared righteous. How do we live now? And that's what these chapters deal with. And then he says, and and this should be common knowledge. This is a common understanding in the Christian realm. Obviously not in the unbelieving realm. But this is basic, what he's saying. Do you not know? In other words, you should know this. This is basic to Christianity, this concept of dying to sin. That's the essence of salvation. A transformation has taken place. We've experienced something different. And you could summarize now in chapter 6, we went through nine separate individual principles, but the essence of everything that we talked about dealt with, basically, we are different and new people. This born-again experience means that we are not the same. It's like driving an old clunker. By the way, I've got one. (laughs) We've seen it. You've seen (laughs) Some of you are eyewitnesses now, after our reunion. And then buying a Lamborghini. But that seat in that clunker is just so much more comfortable. So we keep driving in that old clunker when we have a very nice Lamborghini in the garage there when it would be so much better to uh, take advantage of what we've been blessed with. That's actually your picture that you were showing us in those slides. Oh, yes. That men want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm going to get my next car. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But... The concept, and and this is what we need to get into. So when it talks about in chapter 6, he's going to elaborate on the idea of dying. For do you not know, common knowledge here, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, this whole idea of baptism 
brought us into a totally new experience. Baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. That's dying. We died with him on the cross. God views us as if we were nailed to the cross. He died in our behalf, but it is as if we were crucified. And if we died, the the verse goes on, then also, verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him also through baptism or joined to him. You could don't get tripped up with the word baptism. We've got all these unbiblical concepts in our mind, but put union, united with him, into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. So we are new people, new people in Christ. And the last part of chapter 6, we have a new master now. Instead of being slaves to sin, which we were before we were forgiven and justified, we were slaves, so he's using the slave analogy. We don't get out of it. Now we have the option of being slaves to a benevolent and a good and an omnipotent master. And that's the essence of chapter 6. Then we get into chapter 7. We go back, we're comfortable in that clunker, and we try to live the Christian life with a flat tire and a faulty starter and everything else, try to make it through, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Or we try with this list of laws that we try to obey, that doesn't work. So what he's going to do in chapter 8 is expand upon this newness of life. So in ourselves, even though we have a new nature, we are plagued with the old nature such that we habitually just find it easier to go back to than to avail of ourselves of this newness of life that we have available. So that's kind of a summary of chapter 6, 7, and 8. Particularly chapter 8 is now the newness of life. So... Even the new nature can be overpowered by the old nature, chapter 7. So what we need is new power, in other words, something even outside of ourselves, and that's available. And that's kind of the key to chapter 8, is the power that's available, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he's talking about, in this passage, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So, even though we are converted, even though we have a new nature, that battle is intense enough, and depending on our background, it can be very intense. That old nature, there's a law that's in operation there. We saw that in chapter 8. The law of sin and death. It's like a law of gravity that always pulls us down, pulls us down. We need something to counteract that, the law of the spirit of life, to give us flight, if you will. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. So we're looking at the power and power over sin, first 11 verses. First, we have freedom from condemnation in the context of this new life, in the context of sanctification, 1 through 4. And uh, re-emphasize and to 
kind of reveal in more detail this battle of chapter 7. There's a contrast of the flesh and the spirit, verses 5 through 8. In that, the battle is waged primarily and first and foremost in the mind. It's the mindset. What do we set our minds on? It's a mindset. That's verse 5. In fact, let me read it as well. I don't have it on a slide. For those who are according to the flesh, in other words, that old nature, that old way of life, set their minds on the things of the flesh, things that are temporal, what Russ was talking about. Even good things, wonderful things like football, can become bad things if we stop there. In other words, if we don't view them with a different mindset. Things of the world. We'll give you a whole list of them. It's a matter of how you handle different things. Some things in themselves are even good or neutral. Obviously, there's lots of things that are bad. But even good things with the wrong mindset end up taking you in wrong directions. For the mindset, let's see, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we have to have a different mindset. And that's where Bible study comes in. We want to renew our thinking, view everything from a biblical perspective. And the better we know the, the Word, the, the more when we face different situations in life, now I can react or respond to these things in a different way because I have a resource of understanding of God's principles and a knowledge of his ways and his words. So now I can respond differently to every situation. Instead of getting so absorbed in that football game, I can realize that it has a place, gives me relaxation, so that now I can be more effective in the ministry that God has given me. So the battle is in the mind. And then verse 6 starts the real contrast here. And we spent a lot of time last week looking at this. For the mindset on the flesh is death. We spent a lot of time last time developing this idea of what does he mean by death? He's using death, even in that first verse that I looked at, in a comprehensive sense. In other words, as it has affected our entire being. In fact, that old nature is dead. We saw in chapter 7, God does not improve it. He doesn't reform it. Instead, as we're going to see in these passages, we're to let it die. Because in fact, from God's perspective, it's dead. Already is dead. So the battle is in the mind. And then 6 through 8 are just the results of it, primarily death. He expands that through verse 8. And now we're looking at the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is the alternative. In other words, the mindset on the Spirit takes into account I have dwelling within me God himself as a resource to overcome the law of sin and death. I use the illustration of overcoming the law of gravity. Airplanes use aerodynamic forces to overcome the law of gravity. In the spiritual realm, we have the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life, coming from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why he's going to expand on that. Connie? Well, one of the things we were talking about last night, 
It's the idea of that we have tapes in our mind, and most of them are from our BC days, our, our yep. kernels, yes. whatever. Right. And it really takes a lot to overcome that. We really have to remember to take out the trash. Right. When those thoughts come up, acknowledge them as, as may it never be. You know, get out of there, get yeah. behind me, Satan, you know, that kind of thing. And, and yet it's hard. We have, well, yeah, we have to replace those old thoughts with biblical concepts. That's why he keeps stressing through chapter 6, knowing this, knowing this, do you not know this? It's the knowing. And that's why he stresses in chapter 8, the mindset. In other words, where are you putting your mind, your concentration? What are you taking in to replace, to renew the intellect, to renew our thinking? And the more we're able to do that, the easier it becomes to be able to put away all those old habits that come from these old thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I guess because we're talking about mindset, is when I think about the tapes that roll in That's a mindset, yeah. It is, but yep. when you talk about habits, I think of something physical that I'm doing. But it comes from the mindset. Right, up here is yep. just as much of a closet that needs cleaning out as my physical habits. Yeah, I would say you can't really clean it up the physical habits until you get rid of those tapes. Yep, yep, that's the starting point. Yeah. Otherwise, that's chapter 7. Chapter 7 is, okay, I'm going to just go out and obey the law, and I can't do it because I've got all this garbage in there. I can't produce anything until I've cleaned house, as you're using your analogy there. However, and here's the alternative in verse 9. However, and it just translates a simple transitional day, uh, which can be translated and, but in this context, I think the strong however is appropriate because there's a stark contrast. In fact, it's used primarily to contrast things. However, you are not in the flesh. In other words, this is not the most important element of who you are. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And in the spirit is the essence of who we are. And the only thing, really, that matters in terms of who we are now that we have trusted in Jesus Christ. That is the most important aspect. But you are in the flesh. And then he goes, and now he's going to expand that. And we looked at this last time, but let's not only uh, review it, but uh, take it forward because it's going to lead into the next concept. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that's the key, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea, now it's capitalized, if indeed the Spirit of God, this is the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, let's expand or explain this word of dwelling. It basically comes from the basic idea, it's a a word that's related to a house, like much like your house. This is your house here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? It's oikeo, Greek word, oikos, house. So it has the idea of dwelling in a house or living or taking up residence the place of comfort, the place of relaxation, the place where 
you spend a considerable amount of time. Now, a lot of us spend time outside, but this is a place that we go back to. This is the refuge. This is where we dwell. That comes from that word, and I think it carries some of that connotation in terms of that that dwells in us. In other words, that that takes its shoes off and relaxes within us. It can be used literally in the sense of living together. Would somebody look up that verse? It's in a context. Uh, we have a mixed marriage. A woman married to an unbeliever and or a man married to an unbelieving woman. Somebody look that one up. And then it's used of God in 1 Timothy 3.16. God himself, comfortable dwelling in a certain realm. And then it's used... Even in the context, in fact, it is most often, the reason I'm bringing this out, it is most often used here in this passage dealing with sanctification. And it's used in chapter 7, 17 through 18, and again in verse 20, and then it's going to be used here in verse 9, and then in verse 11, and then in another context, 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Who's got, who wants to do 1 Corinthians 7? Connie's got that one. 1 Timothy 6. You got it? Dwayne, why don't you look at chapter 7 of Romans. You know, turn any pages there. Connie, and remember, 7, chapter 7 is dealing with this mixed marriage condition. It's used in a literal sense of living together, dwelling together in the same household. Marriage relationship, read it. The rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him. Dwell with him, there's the word. Live with him, that's the word. And not with any woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce. Okay, so it's used in both verses. Relating to the man, living to an unbelieving wife, and then one of them, a woman living, or relating to an unbelieving husband. If they're willing, don't divorce, continue to dwell together or live together. That's a literal sense of literally living in a household together with two people. It's used of God dwelling in a particular realm. Who possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal. Okay, that's six. First Timothy six. Six sixteen. God dwelling in unapproachable light. In other words, God basically is omnipresent, but we cannot see him. We cannot see him because that is his realm, a spiritual realm. That's where he resides, you might say. That's his home. And then This is a description of every unbeliever, and this is all the unbeliever has. But in this context, I think it primarily is a reference to the believer and a reference to the believer that has the old nature. Who's got seven? Dwayne, you've got that one, seven, seventeen, and eighteen. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin the most. That dwells in me. We have sin. In fact, you could, remember when we talked about that? That could be a reference to the sin nature dwelling within me. That's where we're comfortable. That's where we feel the most ease. 
And unless we actually determine or by our uh, decision to walk in the Spirit, this is how we wake up. This is the default mode. Keep reading. There is in me that is in the flesh. Nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells in the flesh. So goodness is not at home in the flesh. Goodness doesn't take its shoes off. In fact, it's not there. There's nothing good there. Keep reading. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I did not. Okay, that's what we talked about in chapter 7. Read verse 20 now. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it. Sin that dwells in me, in the old nature. Get that? But we have an alternative, and verse 9 is the alternative of chapter 8. And we just read it. We just saw it on the screen there. So uh, since I don't have it there and I don't want to backtrack, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit taking residence. The Spirit residing. Let the Spirit take its shoes off and relax and find itself comfortable and stay in your home, comfortable. Learn how to walk in the Spirit. Make sense? And we're going to see it again in verse 11, and we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 3.16. That's the only one I looked up. That's the only one you looked up? No, I did. I looked it up then. Okay. Well, read that one then. Okay. I just like the Jewish 2.3.16. All right. 1 Corinthians 3.16. She's going to read it. Okay. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You're even a temple. Better than that mansion I showed you on the slide. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that? In other words, this is common. Should be for the Christian. Temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. It finds comfort there, relaxation, because you are declared righteous. So we have in the Old Testament, remind, just remind you, remember, we're not under law. We're in a different dispensation. We're under grace. That's also at the end of chapter 5. And this is also alluded to, and I think partly in this passage here, in the Old Testament, God dwelt selectively amongst his people. Totally different situation in terms of indwelling presence. God wanted to emphasize that he is separate and distinct from everything else. God is transcendent. Not that he's changed, he's still transcendent. But he's emphasizing that he is separate Holy is another word that we can describe. In fact, that's the common Old Testament word. You don't just walk up in the presence of God because he's separate. We are sinful. We can't approach a holy God. But he gave a means by which we approach him, and it's through the sacrificial system of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So he commands to build a tabernacle where he will continue to separate himself, manifest his presence amongst his people, but the people must bring a sacrifice before they can approach a holy God. And then it was made permanent with a temple. 
There was no indwelling presence in the Old Testament in the way that we experience it in the New Testament. When there was, it was very selective, only kings. Saul had the spirit, but even they could lose it. Spirit left Saul. David was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when he sinned, he prayed, don't let your spirit depart from me because the spirit he saw what happened to Saul. So it could be temporary in the Old Testament and very selective. Prophets, when they spoke, they spoke with the indwelling presence, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they prophesied. And there's a few judges that are mentioned and a few other select individuals. Very few people, and on some occasions, spirit leaving, very few had indwelling presence in the Old Testament. After the day of Pentecost, every single believer now has the indwelling presence. So we have tremendous advantage to be able to live a life pleasing to God than anyone before Pentecost. And this would include the disciples in the life of Christ. It wasn't until the upper room that Jesus breathed the Spirit in the eleven. And then on the day of Pentecost, we have a more universal indwelling, universal amongst uh, all believers. So the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence, actually I've got a different verse here that speaks of the same as the other one that uh, Karen read. But in verse 9 of chapter 8, verse 11, notice what it says in John. Someone read that one. And Karen, since you're there, do you want to also read 1 Corinthians 6? Who wants to do John? Dwayne's got John. Read it loud. John 14, 16, and 17. This is the upper room. This is before Pentecost. This is the Last Supper, if you will. Jesus with the disciples, giving basically his last message before he goes to the cross the next day. Read it. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you the abundance. Okay, another helper paraclete, and in the context you clearly see he's going to give the Holy Spirit who's going to dwell, What is? how does it say there at the end there? That he will abide with you, dwell with you. It doesn't use the word dwell, a different word, but abide, and then keep reading. The Spirit of truth is in the world conceived because it receives him, knows him, that you know him, dwells with you. He dwells with you. In other words, you're in the presence of God with Jesus Christ, making you in the presence of the Holy Spirit as well, but he is going to dwell in you. He's going to make his home inside of your heart, dwell in you. This is a promise. It looks forward. And then on the day of Pentecost, we have the universal indwelling presence, and 1 Corinthians six nineteen tells us that as well. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not true? Okay, did you catch the emphasis there? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, or who is in you. It doesn't use the, dwell, the word dwelling there. Same concept, though. Making his residence within you. And then the verse goes on, verse 9, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... This is so important. This is why this verse actually in 
a doctrinal passage tells us that what happened on Pentecost is a unique event. The It's not the pattern where you become a believer and then you have a blessing of the Spirit later. We have a transition going on there in the book of Acts. The typical is when the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you are born again. Because if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay? The way you formulate doctrine, we've said this several times, is you might find it promised, like the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, in the Gospels and in the Acts, and you might have examples of that doctrine worked out in historical books, but you go to doctrinal passages like the letters to formulate your doctrine, and then from there, now you're in a position to be able to interpret what's going on in those historical passages. So we use a passage like this to interpret what's going on on the day of Pentecost, and what happened in Cornelius' household, and what happened in Samaria. In fact, there were three Pentecosts, you might say. A Jewish Pentecost on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. There were believers that did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. They had that, quote, second blessing of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, the ministry expands to Samaria. Remember that? And they called Peter because salvation is of the Jews. Jews and the apostles had to witness it and to know that God is working a new work. And remember the Samaritans that believed there? They received the Holy Spirit subsequent to believing. That's not a pattern. That's a transition of how God is working to move into a new dispensation. And then we have in Acts chapter 10, the gospel extends to Gentiles. What? Even Gentiles? Wow, that's grace from a Jewish perspective. Even Gentiles. And what happens to Cornelius? Gentile Roman officer. His household believes, and then after they believe, subsequent to believing, they receive the Holy Spirit. And they were speaking in tongues to verify that this is a miraculous event that you can't see that happens inwardly. But to make it evident, God gave a sign so that Peter again would see, wow, this is for Gentiles too. I mean, Samaritans, well, I mean, that's unusual, but Gentiles, what's going on here? Something new. In fact, Peter is prepared in chapter 10 with the vision of the unclean animals that come down, the Command, eat of these unclean... What? I'm Jewish. I can't eat bacon, pork chops. Prohibited. Can't eat that. Eat three times. What God has made clean, remember, is clean. So, if you here's the doctrinal <coughs> statement. If you do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you are not a believer. That's the ongoing doctrinal experience. So the moment a person trusts in Jesus Christ, he has an indwelling presence. 
And this is what Paul is saying. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And to make clear, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He's not a believer, not born again. He may go to church, but he's not a believer. So since Pentecost, we have a whole new era where the Holy Spirit grants many gifts. The moment we trust, we are sealed. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4. In other words, our salvation is guaranteed, sealed. And I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. And what we're talking about here, the Holy Spirit indwells at the moment of salvation. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit now illumines us because he's inside of us working in our minds to help us to understand spiritual concepts. This was not true in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit fills us, and this is an ongoing filling. This is what we need day by day, a filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5. Holy Spirit gives us fellowship. In fact, that's going to be alluded to in this passage. Fellowship with God himself. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to bring an animal to sacrifice. We have the Spirit indwelling fellowship. Sixthly, he empowers. That's what chapter 8 is all about. Power to live the Christian life. That's why I've got them kind of emphasized here. The ones that I've got in red are the ones that are in Romans chapter 8. I should put that, well, I'll put that one in red later on because we're going to see the Holy Spirit interceding for us. We haven't got to the passage, so it's still in blue there. He comforts us. One of the functions that is identified in the upper room, the comforter, gives us comfort, particularly in suffering and in difficult situation. Also convicts us, convicts us of sin. All of this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and primarily from within, indwelling us. Number nine, also admonishes. There's verses for all of these. Direct admonishment. We don't need a prophet. We have the prophecy written, and through the written word, and through illumination of the Spirit, we also are convicted. And then what we have here, he sanctifies, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. All of this is new. All of this is after Pentecost. These are all the blessings that we have in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's room for one more. There may be others. He'll use us in service. He guides, he uses us. Ellen? Um, John 15 talks about abiding me and I, and because that's the same concept. Yes, that's the same concept, and it's future in John or John 15. Yes, that's the same concept. In fact, he's going to talk about John 15 in the next verse. So you're always one step ahead of me, you and... Uh, you and Maddie. So you say uses us in service, another way we can say gifts us. Does he use us in specific gifts in order to... Gifts, yes. Yeah. I was wondering if that one... Well, I ran out of space. That's okay. Yeah. And, and yeah. besides that, the gift is the Spirit. That's right. Well, that's... Yeah, the gift is the Spirit, but it's... And the way he manifests his, his work. Good, good. Yeah, so, that, so your 12 fits that. Yeah, exactly. And there's others, but... Like he's reminding us of what Jesus said. He teaches us all things, reminds us of the great additional. Yeah, we could add to the list, but when you run out of space, you got to stop. 
Verse 10. This is Ellen. That's what Ellen's talking about. If Christ is in you, well, I thought the Holy Spirit was in me. Yeah, well, Christ is too. Can't separate the Trinity. That's the simplicity, the doctrine of the simplicity or the unity of the Godhead. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. Bill? Besides that, in John 14, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be represented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if Christ is in you, so to have the Holy Spirit in you is the same as abiding in Christ or the same as having Christ in you. So we have not only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but now we have Christ indwelling us, 8.10. And just to confirm that, what does Colossians 1.26 say? Somebody look that one up. And then someone also, most of you probably have Galatians 2.20 memorized. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I what? Live by faith in the Son of God. Okay, we don't need to look that one up. Who's got Colossians one twenty seven? Jacob? To them God will take now which is Christ in you for glory. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you have Christ making his home inside of you as well. Let him feel comfortable there. Let him relax. Let him take his shoes off. Let him make himself at home. Allow him just to go to the refrigerator whenever he wants to, all right? Make himself comfortable. Can you separate Christ and the Holy Spirit? Can you divide them up? So if you have Christ indwelling you and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, what would you expect? It's not in this passage, but what might you find? Yep, the Father indwelling us. And we have at least three passages. Somebody, well, let's see, no. That's 6, 16... Somebody look up John fourteen twenty three. Karen, since you're in First Corinthians, go to the next book. Get six sixteen. Since you like all these similar verses, there. Somebody Ephesians three nineteen. Who wants to do that one? Dwayne, you got that one? Who's got John? Maddie, since she hasn't read yet. Fourteen twenty three. Maddie. Jesus answered and said to him, "If any of us, my Father will take our." You hear that? We, Jesus. And the Father will knock on the doorbell and make and say, can we move in and abide with you, live with you? So the Father indwells. Now, that's looking ahead to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's looking ahead to Pentecost. But Second Corinthians 6.16, how does that one go? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay. God, you are the temple, not only of the Holy Spirit, but you can't divide God or the Father. You're the temple of God. And probably the clearest one is Ephesians 3.19. Dwayne's got that one. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness. Be filled with all the fullness of God. We have the indwelling presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the resource. That's the source of power. We have omnipotent power indwelling us, and it's available to be tapped into to live the Christian life. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the old nature, 
reminding us, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Spirit is alive and indwelling because we've been justified, because of righteousness, because we have a right standing. And then 8.11, he's going to describe the life in the Spirit that we'll have to reserve for next week. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, there's resurrection power available. But if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal dead bodies. He'll give life through the new nature, however. Through his spirit who indwells you. There's the indwelling presence again. And we can thank him for the power available. And you might even add omnipotent power is available from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You can even add the indwelling presence of God himself and Jesus Christ as well. Who wants to close for us? We've gone way over time. Time went so fast, Linda just realized it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these promises. These promises are alive, they are active, they are powerful. Do not let us think that they are for another time or only for fairy tales, but show us how you are working in our lives to demonstrate your life through us. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit, the gift that he is to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you.